All right, at this time, I want to invite you to turn with me once again in your copy of God's Word to 2 Thessalonians. As we read chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, the, the, the bulk of the chapter here. Paul the Apostle writing, inspired by the Spirit, gives these words for all God's people at all times and all places. Thus it is for us. The Lord writes through his servant, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith, in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this word. And we ask that you would be with us in our time together. That as we have first read your word and as we now proclaim it, that we would be sensitive to what your spirit is saying. And that we would draw comfort and be challenged by it. We ask that you would in all things get the glory for the sake of Christ. Amen. All right, so brothers and sisters, this is now our third sermon from this book, and we're just now getting to the end of chapter one. Isn't that great? That's how we roll in Reformed churches. And uh, no, I wanted to stop last week and focus on the growing faith part, even though it is true that verses 3 and 4, which was, which was what we looked at last week, uh, this, this section was a little awkward to read because, in part, we translated in English by breaking up and creating sentences because English sentences aren't very long, typically. 
this section contains one of Paul's longest sentences. In fact, verses 3 to 12 is two sentences. Verses 3 to 10 is one sentence in Paul when he writes in Greek. That's a, that's a long sentence. And verses 11 and 12 constitute the second sentence. So this whole chapter is basically two sentences, two really long sentences. And so in this section, I want to give you structurally the breakdown of, the, of this because it is in three convenient parts. In this opening chapter, this, this section of the book where he builds rapport with his people by praying for them and, and, and giving the introductory comments, he introduces what he's going to be talking about later in passing. But in this opening section, he first gives a commendation. That's what verses 3 and 4 do. In verses 3 and 4, he commends them for the fact that their faith and love for one another are growing. Not just growing, abounding. And that picture there is, is of having an overflow. So it's not just, oh, incremental increase. No, it's, it's like it's a good problem. As if you have so much of a harvest that you don't have any place to store it left, okay? So abounding, they are growing in the face or in, in spite of difficulty. And this difficulty takes two shapes. First, persecution, which has intensified. And second, afflict various other afflictions. So there's all the troubles and trials of life which pose and serve as a threat to our well-being, and they can get us down, they can cause us to, to moan and groan and think that the Lord is supposed to have saved us from all this. And second, there's the persecution, the, the stiff-necked opposition that comes from other people. And unfortunately, sometimes persecution can come from people in the church when we get misguided. Now here, that doesn't seem to be the case. Here, the persecution is what we normally think of as those outside the faith. But make no mistake about it. People sometimes persecute other Christians, and that's not acceptable. But we endure it. So he commends them. Good job, guys. You have been steadfast. That's fantastic. But then in verses 4 through 10, he comforts the people. And I'll tell you what, one of the things that was a challenge for me uh, in, in coming to, to, to change my paradigm, I grew up in a tradition, for lack of a better word, that took just about all, any time there was a passage in the Bible that talked about coming judgment or the Lord's wrath or whatever, it was taken as, as, a, as a, this is why we need to warn unbelievers, this is why we need to do evangelism. And that's certainly a correlated application. But one of the things that, that I've had to come to grips with as I've matured is that these passages are not in here typically as a, they need to be warned. They're in here as a comfort for believers. And, and your version of Christianity that you may be raised on may, may sort of uh, uh, prickle a little bit at the idea that the warning passages to unbelievers in the Bible are there to comfort believers. We've seen this consistently throughout multiple books of the Bible. That God's people, the wicked seem to flourish, and God's people are routinely marginalized and 
persecuted, exploited. People take advantage of you because you're busy turning the other cheek. And then at the moment you don't turn the cheek, they mock and ridicule. Um, and the simple fact of the matter is, is God takes account. God is not an impartial, he's impartial in one sense, but he's on your side. And he's not going to listen to the appeals and the complaints of, of worldlings against his people. No, he's, he's on your side. And so the word of God to God's people is take heart. Because every wrong will be made right. And that your behavior in the face of persecution, as you steadfastly hold forth to the promises and walk in faith, hope, and love, it displays to the world, even before God comes and judges, the righteousness and the justice of God's condemnation of them. But here's the part we don't like with the comfort. It says that God is pleased to afflict with affliction those who afflict you. And that God, in that same act, will bring relief to those who are being oppressed and those who are suffering. Okay? But when does it say that's going to happen? In verse 7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. So brothers and sisters, the truth of God is that we are not to look for heaven and utopia here. We will have difficulty until the Lord returns. Okay? So if this world feels a little too comfortable, well, don't forget, it's still not your house. And if the pressure increases... Don't forget he has promised that it would. Don't forget that he has promised to be with us until the end of the age, at which point he comes and he vindicates our sorrows and our suffering. So in verses 4 through 10, he comforts the people with the knowledge that his justice and the vengeance that flows from justice will eventually be meted out. And this will look like the afflictors becoming afflicted and the sufferers finding relief. But then he turns it into, the, into ultimate where he speaks of those being cast into eternal destruction and the ultimate glorification of the righteous, those who have believed. And then in the third structural portion of this opening chapter, verses 11 and 12, he issues a challenge. The challenge is to live up to the standard of conduct that befits the gospel. So, good job. You have held fast. You have, you have grown in the face of difficulty. Be comforted. God will vindicate you. And God will ultimately glorify you. And so in light of this, then, I pray that God would, and that prayer that God would constitutes the challenge. He says, to this end we pray. And it's a two-parted end. That first, God would make them worthy of his calling. And second, that he would fulfill by his power 
every resolve for good and work of faith. So what he's basically praying for then is their sanctification, their continued growth in grace and godliness. The, the challenge that we have as believers is not to get saved in the face of oppression. It's to grow in grace and godliness, to model as God's people, as God's ambassadors, his emissaries in this world, to model the values and the ethics of the kingdom in such a way that they are rendered excuseless. And so we get the good and God gets the glory and he ends this challenge by pointing once again to the union we have with Christ, that he would be glorified in us and us in him. We have been united to Christ. He has wed himself to you. You are no longer your own and you're not alone. He is with you. And he will be with you. And your destiny is intertwined with his and his with yours. There is great security there, great assurance there. So this chapter has three sections, the commendation, the comfort, and the challenge. All right, we're done. Just kidding. Looking at these three sections and what they say, um, it, it got me thinking about how our culture has conditioned us not to think of lasting consequences for much of anything. We think that lasting consequences are, frankly, uh, an unfortunate thing to be avoided, that it's unfair that there ought be lasting consequences uh, in our in our culture, the value or significance of our, of our choices has actually been diminished by the sheer number of choices we have. We have so many choices, so many options, that the significance of any one of those options and choices is actually diminished. So for example, and I'm going to keep it trivial for now, you can go into the grocery store and see an almost overwhelming assortment of dishwasher detergents. But guess what? Aside from your preference, they all basically do the same thing, right? They're all gonna clean your dishes. They, may, they, 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 they do put a few things in there to, to shake it up so that way it looks a little different, but they all basically do the same thing. TVs, tech, I mean, fancier parts, nice, but they all basically do the same thing. So our clothes, our music, our computers, uh, whatever, we have all these options and choices, but the value and significance of those choices is diminished. And, and that has flowed from a culture where that sees a lasting consequence, lasting permanence as a, as a, as a vice, not a virtue. In fact, our culture is very therapeutic, which means I must be made to feel good about myself at all costs. That's the chief good in, in the eyes of our world, that I must feel affirmed. I will not let anybody say or do anything that makes me feel less than good about myself. And so, bad things still happen, 
But in a world in which I must be made to feel good about myself, I will forever pass the buck of responsibility. Because if I'm to blame, then that means I'm not maybe in the right position to feel good about myself in that moment. But if I'm the victim, well, you've done something wrong to me so I can still feel good about myself. And so we blame society. We blame the way we were raised. We blame our parents, the absent parent, the dysfunctional parent, the parent who was too busy, the teachers who were unfair. We blame everybody but us. We have taken destructive, antisocial behaviors and psychologized them, which is to say scientificized them and treated them as diseases or identities rather than as character flaws. Because, heaven forbid, we feel less than awesome about ourselves. And this culture has made it super easy to get a no-fault divorce. Abortions are readily accessible. Bankruptcy can be filed real easy. In fact, we go to court to settle even the most minor of disputes. Why? Because it's not my fault. Why should I have to live with consequences? Even as a society and as households, we continually deficit spend to avoid paying for present consumption. We will pass the buck in every situation. Now, all this, from the top to the bottom, from the big things to the little things, it all points to a culture that has conditioned us to be unwilling to bear responsibility for the consequences of our actions. But here's the rub, guys. Not all choices are trivial and not all consequences can be avoided despite a culture that tells us you can have it all in fact you deserve it we are nonetheless faced with mutually exclusive choices whose consequences are irrevocable now this passage in its commendation comfort and challenge presents us with one such consequential, mutually exclusive, irrevocable choice. This passage that we've just looked at confronts us with the reality of two opposite, mutually exclusive, eternal destinies. And these two destinies are based upon your choice now. From this passage we just read, we saw the Lord coming in flaming fire to judge and to vindicate. But let's back it up a little bit before, a few decades before Paul wrote this. We have Jesus saying, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed 
in the name of the only Son of God. Scripture makes clear. Jesus repeatedly teaches this in his parables and in his periods of didactic instruction that when the kingdom in its fullness comes, there's only two destinies. You will either dwell in the presence of God's glory and fellowship and experience his blessing, or you will be cast out of the kingdom into darkness, in which place and in which case there will be no experience of God's mercy, goodness, and kindness. There will only be the experience of his wrath and justice against sin. This passage in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10 reveals who will be condemned. The oppressors, the persecutors will get it. It speaks of God judging those who do not know God. That is those who have never even heard. They have general revelation, but they have suppressed the knowledge of God. But God does not give them a free pass. Those who do not obey the gospel, who hear and do not believe, oh, that's not for me, thanks. I'm good, fine, thank you very much. I'm living a nice life. I've got everything I need. Or quite frankly, how dare you tell me that I am not okay just as I am. It's not that they're oppressing you, but they don't obey the gospel. And the fate that awaits, the destiny that awaits those who are condemned is horrific. It's spoken of in various ways as being cast into a fiery furnace, being thrown headlong into a lake of fire, being in a state of perpetual rot in which your worm does not die. And here, cast out into darkness. Think about that. But your bodies, that there's fire, there's burning. But your body and soul are constituted in such a way that much like the burning bush of Exodus 4, it is burnt while never being consumed. And there's fire, but no light. Have you ever been in pitch black? Darkness so dark that your eyes never accustomed, get accustomed to it and you cannot see? Oh, I'd never had that experience until we lived in Alaska and our room was in the basement and we'd had a power outage so there wasn't even light from my flock. It was pitch black. It was horrifying. Imagine the sensation of being lost in dark, burning. No friends to console you. No family to tell you it'll be okay. Alone forever. That's horrific. And God says this is the just judgment of those who have chosen it. He's given them all they ever wanted. They didn't want God. He didn't seem to factor into their mind. 
Okay, here you go. But then who will be saved in contrast? Those who are awesome, morally perfect, those who have sainted themselves with acts of piety and charity, the Mother Teresas of the world. I love verse 10. Because who is saved? Those who have believed the testimony Paul has given them. They are justified on the basis of having believed the gospel. And on that basis, they are saved and they are glorified. And Paul prays for sanctification, which is the, which is the fruit of justification in verses 11 and 12. But they're not saved because of how much fruit they had borne. They are saved because of their faith. That comes from the Lord. So you have a choice, brother, sister, friend. Whether you're here or whether you're at home. There is the gospel. That we are by nature estranged from God. And that the wages of our sin is death. But there's only one mediator between us and God. And that is the man Christ Jesus. Who shed his blood on the cross and as proof that God accepted his sacrifice, God raised him from the dead on the third day. And if you will confess the name of Jesus and believe that he has been risen from the dead for you, then you will be saved. Your sins are washed away. And you are made as white as snow. Oh, do not let the day of, of opportunity pass you by. You never know when the bell will toll for you. And to enter eternity trusting in your own merits is the surefire way to face the damnation that we dread so much. So, this passage structurally is a comfort to believers. But in presenting to us the choices and the two destinies you are left with that question. Which destiny am I pursuing? Which destiny am I choosing? Will you believe? Or will you resist? The choice, as they say, is yours. Let's pray.